0: Like Steve said, we were just, uh, you know, grateful. I'm Josh. This is Millie. Uh, we left two little kids under two with my parents, so pray for them more than my parents. But, uh, we're really, really grateful to be here. Uh, I'm grateful for Steve and Ben and the other elders, uh, honestly to, to share this pulpit. And, uh, if you could be in my shoes and, uh, going from the kid who hated wearing shoes and would sneak out of church and try to skateboard really badly in the parking lot to being here in Abu Dhabi preaching with all these nations represented. Uh, It's it's a long ways. It's only by the grace of God. It's only by his uh, working in my life and the many, many people from being a kid and being in youth and being in college, people that poured into me and kept me... uh, aimed at the word and aimed at the cross and not pulled here and there. And it's just, it's only by God's mercy and grace and definitely not anything I did. Um, and then the elders were gracious enough to let me kind of preach on anything, which is always a good thing uh, for someone who's nervous and, and things like that. And I think as I was kind of praying, like, okay, God, what, what do you want me to say? What, you know, what, what, what do you want me to do? I really wanted kind of two things that I was praying for. One is that you would just be encouraged and you would be pointed to God's gloriousness, that you would just see his majesty and his, his grace and love, but also that you would get to know me, how I approach Jesus, how I approach the church, how I approach the ministry that he left us to do. So if you guys would turn to Luke 7, verse 36, Luke 7, verse 36. And this passage particularly has been really on my heart. Uh, it's narrative, which I love. I'm, I'm, I come from sort of an English background. My undergraduate was in creative writing. I love sort of the narration, the poetry. It's also about God's mercy in just an incredible way, a really beautiful picture of God's mercy, which it's always important for us to see. It's about God's kindness towards those who uh, don't agree with him, who disagree with him, his, his enemies, and, and how kind Jesus is towards his enemies. And it's also asking the audience, who is this Jesus? So for those of you guys who like a roadmap, I'm not very good at that. But for those of you who like a roadmap and are big note takers, uh, I'm basically going to walk through the passage, the story and the, the parable. And I'm going to add some kind of commentary along the way, specifically five comparisons of the characters that I think Luke is kind of pointing us to and then we're going to dive into three implications of what the passage says to us. So to kind of catch us up, since we're not going through the Bible, to catch us up, we're in the middle of Jesus's ministry. Uh, in For three years, he sort of had an itinerant ministry where he went round and round to all these towns, and he performed miracles, he uh, healed people, he raised people from the dead, he walked on water, he fed uh, people miraculously, and he basically preached similar things in all these different towns which is how in the different gospels you get lots of different kind of accounts of similar things, different places, as he's going in circles, teaching really, really, really similar things. But what, where we are in, in chapter seven is Jesus' reputation is starting to grow. People are starting to hear about this Jesus. So if you'll turn to uh, chapter seven, verse 36, and we'll, we'll start there. So uh, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with his, her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So verse 36 sets the stage. It sets the scenery where we're at, but it also sets the stakes. We're at the house of one of Jesus's rivals. At this point, we don't know if Simon is like Nicodemus in that he's seeking God and and searching and kind of asking the right questions, or if he's just one of the usual suspects that's trying to persecute Jesus. The first thing we should note, though, is that Jesus ate with many types of people. He cooked fish with lowly fishermen, we see in Luke 24. He had lavish parties with tax collectors like Levi and Zacchaeus, we see in Mark 2. And here he's eating with this sort of religious, intellectual elite. So much of his ministry was eating with people. And, well, this encourages me, uh, honestly. And I try to be... Would like Jesus like that? So just so, you know, I have a big ministry of eating. I really like having people over to our house, going out to the mall, those things. Uh, no, I just think Jesus is always eating with lots of people. Verse thirty-seven though starts the action. A disgraced woman falls at the feet of Jesus, and this here is I think what I love about narrative and, and the Gospels. It sort of pulls you in. This is a type of like kinetic art. It's a it's a one-act play. It's this physical. Living poem that you see. And often, great art is really disruptive to our senses, our five senses. And specifically, Christian art sort of is disruptive but points us to a transcendent God. And so, what we see here, and again, I'm, I'm belaboring this point because I think Luke is strategically giving us very specific details to pull the reader as close as they can to the situation as if you were sitting at the table. So he wants you to be shocked by this liberal use of this beautiful flask and this beautiful ointment. He wants you to hear her weeping, to see her demoralize herself by letting her hair down and even more to debase herself by using the hair her hair as a towel. He wants you to smell the ointment as it fills the room like Vicks vapor rub or some kind of menthol as it sort of just permeates the room and he wants you to look around the table and see the other men silent and awkward and not knowing what to do. You see, sometimes there are, Karen Pryor writes, that there are views we can only glimpse after climbing to the top of a mountain, and poems we only understand by reading the poem several times, slowly, attentively, surrendering ourselves to sort of the demands of the form. In this moment, Luke is asking us to be as close and is awkward at this table and this scene because he doesn't want us to miss what's going to happen. So verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who's touching him for she is a sinner. So verse 39 we realize in this moment that no, he's not like Nicodemus searching for God. He's actually the bad guy. The black hat, as in old Westerns, I'm from Oklahoma, cowboys and Indians. The black hat would always indicate who the bad guy was. We immediately see that he is not genuine or sincere inviting into his, into Jesus into his home, but quite skeptical. If this man were a prophet, Again, we're at the dinner table. Can you see the smirk coming across his face? He caught and exposed Jesus. The stories of Jesus were far-fetched, healing people, knowing other people's thoughts. If, if, if he was a prophet, he would know who this woman is and he absolutely would not let, him, let her touch him because it would make him unclean for worship. It would make him unclean. Her uncleanliness would be passed on to him because he, she touched him. He would have stopped her if he was a prophet. You see, this proved what was already in his heart. Verse 40. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, uh, I want to talk to the kids for a second. So Jesus is about to answer with kind of a parable. You know, we, we talk about parables a lot. And in a lot of ways, it's like bedtime stories. They they kind of have you know animals or or different things, and the idea is it's it's giving you a warning, right? So you kind of tell these stories uh, to sort of warn the people that are hearing them, and it it makes them really tangible, and you you don't forget them in that way. Uh, An example of this I always thought was uh, Millie's dad when they were kids. Uh, he would tell the girls, his two daughters, that. Uh, when they would be driving, and you know you don't put your seatbelt on, it kind of beeps, and, and similar to when uh, a lot of you guys' dads drive 140 on Sheikh Zayed, starts beeping. Um, anyways, he, he would tell her, tell his daughters, "Okay, if that beeps five times, the car's gonna blow up." <laughs> Obviously, this is a lie. You know, you realize later in life. But but even like that that idea of like, oh, it's beeping five times, I gotta hurry and put my seatbelt on. Instead of as a parent just saying over and over and over again, "Don't forget your seatbelt." don't forget your seatbelt. For, it's it's that, that sort of story that, oh no, the car's going to blow up if I don't you know, click it before it beeps five times. It sort of sticks in a different way. Well, that's kind of Jesus' teaching on parables. So uh, sometimes the Bible is, is strange, right, in this way, but it's doing two things. Jesus is telling us these stories for two reasons. One, it would stick in your head, but two, the story reflects like a mirror what is on our insides. So in the same way we look at a mirror and we see what's on the outside, these sort of stories, these parables, they reveal who someone is on the inside and sort of exposes it to the outside. Often we don't actually understand the meaning of these parables unless Jesus tells us specifically or the Holy Spirit shows us these meaning. They're often hard to understand sometimes and we have whole church histories of people misinterpreting them. But again, Jesus is going to tell this story that's like a mirror to expose Simon's heart. So verse 41. So Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher, verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. That's something like two months wages and 20 months wages. And when they could not pay it, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them, Simon, will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose, the one whom he canceled, the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. See, Simon got the answer right. But again, as the audience, Luke's, don't leave the table. Luke's saying, stay at the table. We can't see everything that's going on in the story. We don't know if he answered like with a smirk and kind of laughter from his friends, like, yeah, I mean, the one with the bigger debt, and everyone sort of laughed, how silly that is. We don't know if he was confused, if he kind of responded like, yeah, I mean, the one with the larger debt. Or we don't know if he was even angry, if he was, he was getting mad at Jesus, like the one with the larger debt, obviously. You see, Simon's answer was correct, but his answer condemned him. This intellectual elite who was trained in the law just got lawyered by the son of a carpenter right? So verse 44, then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course he saw her, right? Again, this is like a massively awkward scene. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus challenges Simon the Pharisee to compare him and her, which is ironic, right? Because he is already doing that. He's already standing there and reclining and saying like, look at my righteousness, look at this sinner. He's already already comparing the two of them. It's just what Jesus is calling him to do is to judge her using a different metric than Simon was used to. He's saying, no, we should compare the two you guys, but not on the basis of the law, actually on the basis of love, using a not a law ledger, but a love ledger. And Luke specifically in his gospel loves this sort of juxtaposition, this sort of comparing of two things. We see it with uh, the woman... Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, we see it with uh, Martha and Mary. We see it with uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector praying at the altar. We see it with the older brother and the prodigal son. Luke likes to kind of teach us through using comparisons. So right in here, he, he sort of, Jesus begins by saying, let's, let's compare the two of you. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's a great exercise. So here we are at the scene, and I want us to kind of look at five comparisons Two of them are long and three of them are short, just to be clear. Uh, and I just I just want us to not miss these sort of comparisons. So the first thing Jesus points towards and kind of shows the comparison is their hospitality towards Jesus. And if I was in the U.S., I would have to spend like five minutes explaining hospitality because we're terrible at that. But most of your cultures actually understand hospitality, so I don't need to go into this big explanation of why this is so shocking, uh, but... but Let's, you know, for a moment, for those in the room that are grown up like me. So uh, when he entered Simon's house, he offered no water for his feet. He didn't greet him with a warm kiss, nor did he offer kind of cheap olive oil to make him feel more kind of refreshed. This wasn't by accident, right? He was telling Jesus and all those who were with him using these sort of silent symbols that he was disrespecting him. These were common things that people would do to be warm and hospitable. Both, not just Jewish people, but actually like just Greco-Roman first century. These were just common, normal things. But he wasn't being warm. He was being cold and he was being distant. And he was sort of, you know, keeping a line for you and me. The woman who shouldn't touch him she actually went beyond Jewish hospitality. She didn't just offer him water, but in her great grief, she was so overwhelmed and so distressed for in real life that she wept plenty of tears that she didn't need a basin of water. She didn't just give him a towel, but she lowered herself, letting her hair down to use her hair lower than any servant that would have typically done this. She lowered herself, used her hair. She didn't give him just a warm hug or like a sisterly kiss but she just kept on kissing his feet hundreds and hundreds of times as someone who desperately needed something. And more than just offering cheap olive oil, she took this precious and expensive ointment, something that was meaningful to her enough to spend the little money she had, money that she had earned using her body, money that she could have kind of kept her afloat, money she needed and she use them on Jesus's cracked feet. And Mark adds, she even smashed it and sort of poured it over Jesus's head. Again, the hospitality towards Jesus showed what they really thought of him. Uh, Recently, I know some of you guys have asked, but uh, before Millie and I came here, one of the big things we were doing is like 1,800 Afghani refugees are coming to the city we're in and we're specifically kind of, helping the churches together kind of manage uh, all the Afghanis. And it's been a really, really, really cool thing. And the day before we got here, uh, 16 of them showed up at our church and we got to kind of integrate them in our church and kind of bring them in. Lots of people served in a lot of different ways. It's been just really, really amazing side of God's grace. But uh, there is no receiving line, like an Afghan receiving line, like when you go into a home and you you kind of go around every single person, you shake their hand or kind of do whatever you need to. And you know, they're, they bring you in so close, you, you're family. And they offer you chai, you know, they, they set you on the, the, the best, most important seat. Um, you know, this sort of warm hospitality. And I'm just, I'm so reminded in this moment what it would have been like to walk in and like just someone not to stand up. You know, everyone jumps up and they're being hospitable. And then that one person's just sitting there, you know, just totally could care less about the disrespect. And, you know, that's, that's this right here. Their hospitality toward Jesus showed what they really thought of him. Number two, second comparison. How they actually came to Jesus, like how they approached him. Simon is a Pharisee. He has all the right credentials. He's intellectual. He's religious. He's wealthy enough. He had a good, respectable job. He was a part of the in crowd. And despite popular belief, if you kind of read Jewish primary sources, the Pharisees were the good guys compared to like the Sadducees. They actually believed like in the law and the prophets. And they were trying to make kind of uh, the temple priests not have as much power. They actually wanted like more people and sort of a uh, democratization of kind of like the, the people. Like they were the good guys before Jesus showed up and made them look really bad, right? So uh, he's part of the in crowd, a part of like the right group. And then you have uh, The woman. The sinner. She has none of the right credentials. She had a terrible reputation. The kind of people that would hide their children's eyes when she walked by on the streets. You know, she wore the clothes that didn't cover enough. She was poor and desperate, and the only thing she had to sell was herself. And I imagine when she ran to Jesus, she didn't take the time to go home and change, you know? The Pharisee needed nothing. And the woman needed everything. And how they came to Jesus revealed what they needed from Jesus. So the rest of the comparisons are much shorter. But number three, he was a man and she was a woman. And we don't have to go into details in this, but the power dynamic was not equal when one was considered property and the other wasn't. Number four, his posture was reclining. So at minimum, he's equal to this so-called prophet Jesus. So he's reclining, he doesn't really take, no, which is normal. It's not like a bad thing that he was reclining. But I mean, he was reclining and Jesus was reclining. Her posture was as low as you could possibly get. Her face on the ground, a servant before a king. And again, their posture reveals what they believe Jesus is capable of. And we'll come back to this, but both of them had heard about Jesus. Simon had heard about Jesus and had invited him over to his house. And the woman had heard about Jesus and and ran to them and fell at his feet. So, both of their kind of postures as they come to Jesus. And then number 5, he cared about what other people thought and she cared about what God thought. He wanted to expose Jesus to a crowd to look better himself, to look smarter, to look more, you know, intellectual. And she worshiped God despite everyone else watching. He cared about what other people thought. She cared about what God thought. And actually I said five, but really I want to do six. He knew who she was and she knew who she was. Think about that one for a second. He knew who she was, the sinner, and she knew who she was, the sinner. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can save. Only God can offer peace. Jesus is God, right? And this was good news for some of those people at the table. But it was terrible news for other people at this same table. Jesus draws the real line in the sand. And there's three implications I kind of want us to get from this passage, okay? So three implications to Jesus and his posture towards the woman and his posture towards Simon. So number one, Jesus offers forgiveness to the worst of sinners and gives peace to the most brokenhearted. That's not the implication, okay? That's, that's a, a statement of fact. That's true. Jesus offers forgiveness to the worst of sinners and gives peace to the most brokenhearted. The implication is do you believe that? Like, do you believe that Jesus offers forgiveness to the worst of sinners and gives peace to the most brokenhearted? And maybe the answer is no, because you are like Simon. You're you're skeptical of Jesus. Now, maybe not on the outside. Maybe you have been close enough to him, you've spent time with him, you've read his word, you've heard these miraculous stories, but in your heart, you're you're still skeptical of Jesus. At minimum, you don't fully believe, and at maximum, you're actually waiting to find that right detail that will expose all of this Christianity as wrong. For some people, it's it's this passage, actually. When you look at the other four gospels, they kind of give different details and they're kind of hard to square. And now there are really good explanations. So I'm not saying that they give different details, but they are hard. It's hard to explain this passage. And often people are like, look, the Bible's not true. These, these four gospel accounts don't uh, all line up. But again, that exposes what you really think, right? Not that we are blind in our, our faith, but I beg you, like, please don't answer the question right. Who is Jesus? and condemn yourself in the process. You can know Jesus in your mind, but if it hasn't sunk into your heart, if it hasn't changed your affections, you are as far away as anyone. There are so many warnings about this. And like, when I was a kid in the youth group, this was me. Like I'd heard about Jesus, I grew up around it. I I actually do believe I was a believer, but I have so much skepticism about this thing called church and this, this thing of the Bible, because, uh, you know, I, I just, I wanted, and I loved people, especially on the outside of the church. And I couldn't square with sort of often our hypocrisy inside the church. And as, as a youth, I really, really struggled with this sort of skepticism. And it was people pouring into my life that, that really kept me there. But maybe the answer is no. Right? Jesus offers forgiveness to the worst of sinners and gives peace to the most brokenhearted. Maybe the offers no for a different reason. Maybe it's because you think your sins are unforgivable. And I, I, I knew, I don't know what you've done or, or haven't done at this point. I don't know what guilt you carry. I don't know the brokenness you wake up to every day or go to sleep with. I do know that this woman knew all of her sins and so did Jesus and he gladly forgave her and offered her peace. I know that if you believe in your heart and I mean truly believe and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that there is no sin that Jesus did not nail to that bloody cross or no drop of wrath that he did not drink for those who he calls. And often, you know, we may even lack faith in this and and I think we can pray to Jesus like, Lord, give me faith, I believe, help my unbelief. And if Jesus is calling you and and the spirit is working inside of you, then please, I beg you to believe. Look at how Jesus responds to this woman. His metric is not how good you are. His metric is, do you believe that he has the authority to offer you salvation, that when you stand before God, he makes you right with God? Do you believe that he is God do you believe that he is willing that he willingly walked to Calvary carried his cross was despised by men died with a crown of thorn on his head so that he could take the sins of the world on his shoulder and on that third day he didn't stay dead but actually rose from the grave and now he has ascended and sits at the right hand of God and is our advocate before God and that when we walk forward and covered in our sins he takes his righteousness and cloaks us with that He takes all the good things in the perfect life he lived and the perfect sacrifice he died. And he cloaks us with that. And when we stand before God, God doesn't see all of our sins, but he sees Jesus's blood covering all those sins. Do you believe that? She did, which is why wherever she was, she ran to Jesus. She fell at the feet of Jesus and she worshiped her God who forgives all and heals all who comes to him. And if that's you, please don't tarry. Please don't continue to carry the burden of your guilt and of your sin when Jesus offers to free you of that burden. Implication number two, what is your alabaster jar that you need to smash at the feet of Jesus? Another way to say that, and this could be kind of a stretch, but Uh, what do you have that God is calling you to sacrifice for the church, right? It's kind of a jump, but think about it. Jesus ascended, now the church is his body on this earth, right? Modern day, the church is his body on this earth. And one way we worship God is to be the church. One way we worship God is to love the church and specifically we love one another by sacrificing for one another. More than like simple hospitality, right? More than like what we're just supposed to do, like the base level hospitality. Actually, what is sacrificially loving the church? And it's funny because I, I, I've really been wrestling with this too. And it's like, often we, we view sacrifice in a weird way. We, we basically are like, I have to give this up and get nothing in return. That's what we think of sacrifice. But that's really not what's happening, right? So uh, like think real world, normal, like everyday sacrifice. We often give things up to get something greater. So for example, uh, the athlete you know, sacrifices his body and his time so that he wins the championship. That's greater than before. The entrepreneur takes the risk of bankruptcy by not taking a paycheck, working 100 hours a week, and then hopefully his company will be worth way more than if he ever just took a paycheck, right? Or there's a dad that skips a meeting that would help him on the corporate ladder because he wanted to see his son score a soccer goal, right? So he's willing to take not moving up to, to, to see his son score this goal. No, what we often give up gives us a little bit, little joy, and it will eventually, what we're gonna get is gonna give us immensely more joy. That's kinda the idea of sacrifice in the real world. And that's very similar here, right? Like what is this alabaster jar that we're willing to sacrifice so that we experience this greater love and this greater love of the church and this greater love of of God. And let me be really clear. I don't mean like she gave up an alabaster jar and then got like a closet of them, right? Like she didn't give something up to get more of that same thing. No, she gave up and sacrificed this thing that was precious to her to get Jesus, right? And not even to get Jesus, to display what Jesus had already done in her heart like the, the reaction to what Jesus had done in her heart was, was to give and to sacrifice. She didn't need convincing, right? She, she heard of Jesus and she ran to him and laid all that she had at her feet. And I'll even go as far to say, the only reason we give something up is because we love something more. So if we aren't there yet, right, and like, let me give a reason, you know, an idea just like a totally off the top of my head, has nothing to do that I've thought about this before, but like taking kids to youth, right? Sacrificing gasoline, going to get them, taking them so that they can be at youth group, like is the one way in which we sacrifice for the good of other people, but also to see the church flourish, right? And if we struggle with giving stuff up, we actually have a love problem, not a sacrifice problem. We we don't love properly in the same way that we, we should. So uh, if the Spirit's prompting you that there's something that you do need to sacrifice, whether it's money or time or energy or even just like ideas to love his church, remember, they know that we are his disciples because we love one another. And you can love Jesus and worship Jesus by loving his church. And if we're not continually sacrificing, our love has gone cold and that must be addressed. And small groups are a really good place to address that. Implication number three. One knew Jesus and one knew of Jesus, but they were both told about Jesus. Both Simon and the woman had heard about Jesus. His reputation began to to, uh, spread. And I think the saddest thing about the story to me that we didn't even go to here is in Matthew and Mark, Simon was a leper. So it wasn't just that he was a Pharisee, but he's actually a leper. So he had Jesus in his house. And we know, we know that Jesus could heal lepers. He healed lots. of them. And here, this leper had Jesus in his house, but he didn't welcome him. He was in his home, but not his heart. He uh, was not a savior, but a stranger. He was cold and unaffectionate. He approached Jesus skeptically. And then you had the woman who heard of Jesus and heard of the grace he offered and she fell on her face. He was the only one who could fix her brokenness and make her whole. And I think often like implication number three is, is, is this is evangelism, right? This is how you share about Jesus. And we have to make it really, really complicated or or do lots of things. But really, uh, particularly in this passage, all evangelism is, is just declaring that Jesus forgives you. Like if you believe God's sovereign plan, that he's calling those to himself, right? Like we can't see who those people are. We don't know who those people are. All we know is that there are people out there from every tongue, tribe, and nation that are called by God to, to be with him forever. And our only job is to, to basically tell them who Jesus is, right? To, to tell them what we know about him and to tell them what he offers and to, to say to them, like, he, you, the burdens that you have, the sins that you carry, the weight that you just keep trying to get things right, like, you don't have to carry that burden. You can cast that on Jesus who took that to the cross. And when she heard about Jesus, she went straight to him and she fell and she wept for mercy and she received it. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul describes us all as new creations. And as a result, we have a ministry of reconciliation to all those who are new creations. And what's his message, right, in this? That God does not hold their trespasses against them if they're in Christ. Verse 21 of Second Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is good news. The gospel we get to proclaim to people, to our friends, our coworkers, our families. And have you ever just said that to them, right? Like not some big gospel presentation, not something just like said to them. Like I get up every day, and don't have the burden of my sin because I know Jesus has that burden. I don't have the weight of my eternity because Jesus has that weight taken care of. He does not hold trespasses against God's children. And I think lastly, if, if we are a Christian sort of caught in this habitual sin, right? That happens to us often at times and we cannot break, like cast that guilt on Jesus. And now you're free to smash that alabaster jar at the feet of Jesus. So let me conclude with this. The point of this passage is that Jesus forgives sins. It's very, if you don't get anything else, Jesus forgives sins. But right behind that is a secondary point, And that's our love for God and others is directly connected to being able to see our sin properly. Let me say that one more time. Our love of God and others is directly connected to being able to see our sin properly. If you cannot see your sin properly, you cannot see what Jesus has done for you. And even maybe one time you did, like a long time ago, you you did know your sin and you came to, to Jesus. But it's been a long time. You've been a Christian a long time. You'll never be able to love God and the church in the same way, and especially those outside of the church, if you don't remember who you were at the beginning, who you were before and why God lets you in. And secondly, if you know your sin and you can see it clearly with God's eyes, you will run to Jesus. You will fall on your face and you will smash whatever you hold dear at his feet because of the joy of being God's children far outweighs the joy of the world has to offer. And often, you know, this passage can, can be heavy, right? There's lots of heavy stuff in it. But I think it's because we often are more like Simon than we are, you know, like the sinner. And Jesus is beckoning us. I'm mean, just calling us to not be skeptical, to not forget, but to run to him and just fall on our face and know that when we lay our head down, it is nothing that we did, but it is everything that he did. Let me just pray. Father Lord, we are just uh, grateful for who you are. We're grateful for passages like this. We know Jesus is the reflection of God. And we know that when God looks at sinners, he has compassion through Jesus. And we just pray today that uh, our hearts would be stirred and that we would be more like this woman who just ran and laid everything at Jesus's feet. And we would be less like Simon, who is is skeptical of, of the power in Jesus. We just thank you for the cross and we thank you that all the things that we carry, we can just lay at the cross. And in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.